Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebro, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The definitive rap is proud to be the official podcast of vinnews.com. On June 18th, Professor Jeffrey Lacks, whom Bela will introduce shortly, resigned from the CUNY's Professors' Union over the passage by an overwhelmingly number of colleagues on an anti-Israel resolution. In a recent column from the Jewish Press, the opening paragraph reads as follows, quote, The 47-year-old Jewish professor of business at Kingsborough Community College in Brooklyn, New York, was appalled by a recent 8334 vote by the Professional Staff Congress of CUNY on a June 10th resolution that condemns the, quote, the continued subjugation of Palestinians to the state-supported displacement, occupation, and use of lethal force by Israel, and also racism in all its forms, including anti-Semitism, and recognizes that criticisms of Israel, a diverse nation-state, are not inherently anti-Semitic. In what is part of a rising trend of Palestinianist-inspired anti-Semitism, since the normalizing of the anti-Semitic squad in the Democrat Party, we have witnessed the growing chorus of blood libeling against the Jewish state of Israel. With each day, we are seeing Democrats, who have been in Washington for over 30 years, cowering in fear over being primaried out of office if they dare stand up to these anti-Semitic provocateurs. The list of attacks against Jews in Israel is endless, but we know who the instigators are, and worse, we know who the cowards are who won't stand up against anti-Semitism unless they are speaking at a yeshiva dinner and receiving some meaningless awards. Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer have lauded squad members for their hard work and dedication, while Jewish Democrats like Chuck Schumer have remained silent. While college campuses profess to be places of higher learning and safe spaces of tolerance and diversity, the one group who has benefited from none of the above are pro-Israel Jewish students and professors. Bela? Thank you, Alan. Why are we so surprised to hear about campus anti-Semitism? How can there not be an increase in anti-Semitic verbiage when you have role models to college students such as the rapper Tamar Nafar, who at a musical performance announced, this is my anti-Semitic song, and he encouraged his young audience to sing along. To motivate and persuade his audience even further, he announced, think of Mel Gibson, referring to the, anchor, uh, to the actor whose drunken anti-Semitic rants made headlines, go that anti-Semitic, he implored. I cannot be anti-Semitic alone. We need to understand that in that video that went viral, the audience, in addition to students, also included university staff, faculty, and scholars. Shockingly, in the video, you can hear them singing along to the catchphrase, oh, I'm in love with a Jew and laughing. 
This took place at a conference about Gaza that was co-sponsored by University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It was funded by a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, which the university clearly misused. The conference was anti-Israel and featured speakers who demonized Israel. Days later, anti-Semitic flyers were discovered on the UNC campus, which referred to an evil Jewish plot. When there is a problem in a structure, you have to look at the foundation. And when there is a crack in the foundation, then you have to assume and believe that the structure is problematic. When you have faculty and scholars condoning and participating in anti-Semitism, then you cannot expect differently from the students. Our honored guest today, who resigned from the CUNY Professors Union over the recently passed anti-Israel resolution, is Jeffrey Lacks. Jeffrey is an attorney, professor, and department chair at CUNY. He has hosted radio shows on 770 WABC, 970 WNYM, and consults on air as a legal analyst for cable news channels such as Newsmax and Newsy. Professor, welcome to the Definitive Wrap. Thank you so much for having me. You do wonderful work, and I am awed to be in your presence, and I know that Alan feels the same. You recently appeared on Newsmax to discuss CUNY Faculty Union's one-sided resolution criticizing Israel and demanding BDS action in violation of Governor Cuomo's anti-BDS executive order. Professor, please educate our audience about that. So, uh, yeah, it's a horrific one-sided resolution. Uh, Alan read some of the really bad parts in the resolution. Um, The things that stood out to me and people who agree and feel the same way was that they make no mention at all of Hamas firing missiles at Israeli civilians. Um, And and I wrote in my resignation letter to the union that if that's not anti-Semitic, then I don't know what is. To leave that out, uh, they didn't forget that Hamas fired missiles at Israeli citizens, um, at, at, at civilians. Um, They didn't mention that. So very convenient that that's not part of their narrative. Um, So and and then the BDS part of it, which we know is an executive order by Governor Cuomo, um, that it clearly violates. The strategy involved with this is so intricate because there were uh, detailed discussions among the union members and the union delegates and the leader, the executive council of the union, about what to put in the resolution and what not to put in the resolution. And they were very specific about wording the BDS language to say that we will have discussions about BDS. So why did they word it that way? Because they don't want the executive order being enforced. So they're calling it discussions about BDS. But if you read the resolution carefully, the last paragraph at the bottom clearly demands divestment from Israel. It says, we demand that the U.S. not fund Israel. Well, that's the D in divestment. Uh, either they don't know what divestment is, which some of them are dumb enough not to know, or this was a strategized plan uh, to word it one way in one paragraph, and that's the answer, um, and to word it a very different way at the end without the word divestment. But it clearly is divestment. And if this podcast, and I hope Cuomo or somebody who works, Jacob Adler, who's a Jewish liaison in his office, who I've been in touch with about this, uh, I hope he sees that, and I hope they enforce the executive order. 
You know, Professor, one of the questions I have always had is we know that groups like Students for Justice in Palestine, SJP, they are funded and organized to be on every major campus. But when it comes to faculty members, are these also organized and funded behind to get them in? Uh, or is it just a matter of coincidence that professors or that leftists just happen to go into uh, the education or is it strategically funded to get Antifa supporters, leftists, Palestinianists into positions of power on faculty so that they can drive a narrative? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, clearly, there is funding from unions. The, these unions are very powerful. Uh, my union has 25,000 members. They take 1% of our salary, so that adds up. And they have a, and my union, the PSEQD, is, is, an, is an arm of the AFT, of the AFL-CIO. So that these are the most powerful unions in the world. Uh, they have a lot of money. They are a, a daunting uh, organization to combat. Um, doing the best I can as a little guy. But they have a lot of money. And yes, they do terrible things. And one of the reasons I was so pleased to be able to come on with you and talk about this in long form, instead of a 30-second hit piece on Newsmax or Newsy, is because uh, a lot of people don't know where the evil really comes from. Where is the root of the evil? Because CUNY clearly is doing a horrible job in tolerating this, but the evil itself, and people don't know this, but I see it every day, comes from the unions. The unions are the ones funding this. The unions are the ones organizing events. The unions work together. So the California Union, you may have heard, or your listeners may have heard about the SFSU, controversy with uh, um, Abdul Hadi a couple years ago with the Lawfare Project. If not, Google it. It's disgusting what they did to the Hillel group there. Um, but they work with our union and they, and they use CUNY government buildings to have anti-Semitic SJP type events uh, where they're saying things that are frankly not legal in New York and other states and doing terribly anti-Semitic things. And uh, you know, one one example. So the, there's a professor at my campus, Anthony Alessandrini, who has had fundraising uh, events at in our on our campus at our beautiful rotunda at Kingsborough, where he raises funds, sells uh, shirts and, and uh, paraphernalia and raises funds for an NGO that is connected to terror in the Middle East. And the Daily News did an expose about that a couple of years ago. Uh, and CUNY tolerates it. But I always distinguish, not that I'm defending the people who tolerate this. They should not be defended. It is abhorrent. They should do something about this. And CUNY is not doing anything about it. But people don't know about the other part. Where does the root cause come from? When you see students who are all riled up and doing die-ins and saying that Israel and Jews are massacring Palestinians, students don't come up with that themselves. They really don't. The typical student wants to go to school get his or her education, get their degree, and go out and get a great job. So where do they get this indoctrination from? Where do they get this anti-Semitism from and anti-Israelism from? They get it from the unions and the faculty whose main job, they see it. I see my job as educating. They see their job much differently than a typical faculty member. They want to indoctrinate. And that's where it comes from. And the funding comes from the union and that the money has to be followed. If that money has never been followed before. I really hope it starts. So clearly, um, it's the foundation that's wrong. 
Professor, how have things evolved over the years with regard to being a faculty member of a university? I know that people say that things have gotten worse over the years, but I've heard from old timers who said that when their parents came to this country, they instilled in their children to hide not only their orthodoxy, but the fact that they are Jewish at high ranking positions. It's a very personal question for me, Bela. Um, I don't wear my yarmulke on campus. Um, I've never spoken about this before. Had I worn my yarmulke on campus, I would not have been hired. Um, I'm not speculating. I know the people who hired me. I know who they hired. Uh, I'm not just a professor. I'm also a department chair, which means I serve on the college personnel and budget committee. I've been doing that for 11 years. So I see the hiring process. I know I see the discrimination. It is disgusting. Uh, I've been fighting it behind the scenes for many years. Um, So uh, listen, as someone who is a child of four Holocaust survivors and eight people who were my great grandparents who were, sorry, as a child, my grandchild of Holocaust survivors and eight murdered in the Holocaust and great aunts and uncles, all of whom almost were murdered by the Nazis. I understand what you're saying. It is horrific to be able to, to have to take off your yarmulke or, you know, a woman, it's a lot harder. It's a more of a halakhic issue. And I'm not a rabbi by any means, but, uh, but, but I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you something that, that I really haven't told most people. And that is as I'm a hiring manager at the college and uh, I have had uh, applicants and I don't care whether they wear a yarmulke or anything, a burqa, whatever. I don't care. If you're a good faculty member, I'm going to hire you. But I have told um, individuals with yarmulkes that when, because the final step is meeting with the president. And I've told them that they should take off their yarmulke. Um, It's the worst feeling in the world for the grandchild of Holocaust survivors to tell somebody who is highly qualified to, to get a job at our campus, you probably should, I'm telling you this for your own good, um, if you want this job, because I want to hire you, you probably should take off your yarmulke before you go to the president. And then if you want to start your job with the yarmulke, that's great. But when you meet some of these people, I would take off my yarmulke. That is horrible. Uh, but I have done that. And the only other Orthodox Jewish uh, department chair also has told her candidates the same thing. And by the way, we didn't know that the other one was doing this. It only came out years later when we right. it came up in conversation. Like You also tell your candidates when they meet with the president, not to wear a yarmulke? And, and she said, yes. And I'm like, wow, I've been doing the same thing. We both lamented over it. We had a candidate, and this was in the news, so I'm not giving anything that's not publicly available. You can Google it. We had a candidate um, named Doe Fisher, who was a PhD in accounting. Now, accountants will know a PhD in accounting doesn't exist. And we work at a community college. So that really, we don't get PhD. I, I've been doing this 11 years. I saw one resume of a PhD in accounting. It doesn't happen. This guy was so immensely overqualified for this job. Um, and my department, who are the experts, the accountants work in my department, they wanted to hire him because he was the gold standard of a professor in accounting. And he had teaching experience in accounting at other colleges. Um, and he also was published already. He had all three prongs that you need. And the president, he came with the yarmulke. And the president did not hire him. And this is not me. This is him. He came out and said he could tell when he met her that she saw the yarmulke, made a face, and didn't treat him the same way. And he then went to Brooklyn College and eventually ended up getting a job there. They didn't hire him either at first. And he threatened to sue the university. 
And then only because they were threatened with legal action did they hire him. Now, I lost him. I lost uh, a phenomenal uh, member of what would have been a member of my department. And now he's done such a great job. He's actually, I'm breaking news here, he's the incoming chair of the department in Brooklyn College. So he's been an absolute boon for them. And we lost out for him. And he said it, that he felt they looked at his yarmulke, they didn't want to hire him. So I have not worn one. I'm embarrassed to tell you that. Uh, but I'm happy that I get to do some of the things that I do today for mm -hmm. not having worn a yarmulke. So it's, it's funny, Professor, I don't want to dwell on that, but it's just an observation. You'll notice no other group are embarrassed. You walk into an airport, uh, Jews who want Avamincha will stand next to a cell phone, next to a telephone and act like they're talking. But Muslims will walk in there with their carpets and they won't be embarrassed. So this is certainly something that's and, and I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of some of this, but I have modified myself in my business. But. Uh, well, that's for another conversation. Can you I just say one thing? Sure, sure. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed. I, I just, right. I, I agree with you. Some people are embarrassed. Me personally, it's important to me that I say this. It's your a fear podcast. thing. Yeah. I'm not embarrassed about the yarmulke. I, I do it because I wouldn't have gotten the job. Right. And I know I do this to get a job. So I'm not embarrassed. Um, there are people who are. I don't disagree with you. Right. But I did it because I want right. to. I wanted to, you know, get where I am. Sure. Um, no, you mentioned embarrassed. I don't think they're embarrassed. I think they're just afraid of the reaction. Um, yeah. Anti-Semitic reaction. Right. I think that's really what it is. I don't think it's, it's really right. embarrassment. That's well, just listen, my to anybody at my campus who's watching this compact, uh, who's this podcast. Take a look. I'll move it to okay. the front of my head. All right. <laughs> With a Bobby You're not going to see me wear this on the good campus you. because of too many people there hate it. Well, Professor, I want to ask you a question, though, after that. You mentioned the unions, and I don't know. I'm asking you, I don't know if you know or not. Um, is this a widespread union issue or a teacher's union issue? And I asked for two reasons. One, I remember in 2015, uh, Randy Weingarten, president of the AFT, spoke at a J Street convention, and she and others just beat the hell out of Israel as they do at every J Street convention. But you also may know that recently Palestinianists and other Arab activists have uh, blocked Zim, the Israeli cargo company, from unloading at docks. And the dock workers' unions did not cross the picket line. So to your knowledge, do you know if this is widespread amongst the broader union sector, or is this more confined to teachers' unions? Um, well, I don't, I don't want to speak to non-teachers' unions because I just don't know. Uh, but it, it definitely is a major issue amongst our unions, um, our union is an arm of the uh, AFT and of the AFL-CIO. It's an enormous union, a very powerful, very rich, uh, overflowing in money union. Um, and they absolutely, this comes from the union. And, um, you, know, you know, what we're seeing in society today, the degradation of our society, the lack of civility, which no longer exists, the lack of any government, the government institutions that are being just torn down left and right, um, and, and the lack of respect for the people who died for our, to have this freedom that we have is it, just sickening. But that all that stuff comes, you know, I see it five. I tell everybody I see this stuff five years before it happens because it stems from the unions and it stems from the college campuses. Everyone says college campuses, but those people don't realize, again, students don't come up with this stuff themselves. SJP is a marketing ploy. Students for Justice in Palestine is a marketing ploy. It is not students. Yes, they have students. 
yes, the students do what we see them do on video and stuff like that. That's not where it comes from. Students want to go to school, get their degree, 99.9%. They are organized by faculty members, and faculty members have a lot of influence on students if they want to. I don't want to. I want to teach. But the ones who want to indoctrinate and influence, they can because they have a lot of power. They're all the power at the university. So SJP, for example, uh, absolutely, that those types of organizing come from the unions. And where the unions get their money, we have a 25,000-member union. They take 1% of our dues, a lot of money, right? And our unions do, to answer your question directly, work with other unions like the SFSU uh, California Union, for example, uh, you, and your listeners can Google the Abdul Hadi situation at SFSU and the Lawfare Project, and, and they do events in government buildings. They'll, ha- they'll hold uh, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel events at CUNY and California government college buildings. So yes, that's where it comes from. It comes from the unions, and I've seen this stuff firsthand. And I tell people five years ahead of time what's going to happen in society, and I've been right every single time, sadly. Professor, I have a question from another perspective. When you hear about anti-Semitism on campuses, how is that not a breach of faith? How does it not undermine intellectual culture? And how is it even tolerated? Yeah, uh, 100% right. Uh, The union, there's two angles to this. The union is one angle. The union has a a very high level of care of duty that they owe to their members. They are supposed to represent all members, whether they support the Palestinians or the Israelis or both. Um, And they don't do that. They have very one-sided positions, in my opinion, anti-Semitic positions. Because, again, when you don't mention missiles uh, raining on citizens of Israel... You're anti-Semitic, period. End of story. I, I, I don't need to know anything else because then you don't care about all civilians. You just care about non-Jewish civilians. That's what it tells me. Um, but uh, so they have a duty to represent all of us and they don't. CUNY tolerates this, which is a disgrace and it is shameful um, and they should not do that. And there, it, there, I have seen it firsthand. There is definitely a disparity between the way Jews are treated and other protected classes uh, at CUNY, at my university. It's, it's just a fact. You know, so just to follow up on what you just said, something I noticed, and this was also in the column and quoting you about uh, and that they said first that um, Israel is a diverse state, but then also it's apartheid. Uh, one thing I've noticed, every single minority group on earth defines what is racism to their group. The black community will tell you what racism is. The gay community will tell you what homophobia is. The Arab community will tell you what Islamophobia is. Jews are the only group who cannot, who are not allowed to define what anti-Semitism is, but worse, they're being dictated to as to what qualifies as anti-Semitism and what doesn't. Yeah, and I also, I want to add on to that because I've been talking to people about this for years. I think the word anti-Semitism is horrible. I think that is the, I think we've already, we're already losing the battle when we go into the conversation because what does anti-Semitism mean? What does that word mean? It doesn't cover the specific situations that are always at issue. For example, if you're claiming religious discrimination, you keep Shabbat, you keep kosher, and your institution is discriminating against you, how does anti-Semitism cover that? Because the person who may not be allowing you to do that might be a secular Jew. So what are they going to say? They're going to say, well, how could I be anti-Semitic? I'm Jewish, right? 
So now, as a lawyer, I know that that's a foolish argument. If you go into court and say, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm Jewish, a judge will laugh you out of the courtroom. They will say, you're a moron. Of course, you can discriminate against Jews. I don't care if you're Jewish. If you're a woman, you cannot hire women. You could discriminate against women. It doesn't matter what you are. But in terms of public discourse, not in the courts, and by the way, people don't know they can go to court in situations like that. So the bad guys here have won the public relations battle because people don't realize that they are legally protected from some things if the person discriminating against them might be a Jew, if they're discriminating based on religion. And that's very important. We have to have that discussion. Anti-Semitism is a horrible word. You're 100% right that we're allowing other people to define what it means. But I think it starts with that word. I mean, I hate to focus on that so much, but the word is... By the way, in this union discussion, a perfect example that just happened, Alan, in this resolution that was just passed, they were discussing how, how not anti-Semitic they were. They were so proud of it. And they, they actually put it into the resolution that so, we're not anti-Semitic. Have you ever seen a resolution that had to say we're not anti-Semitic? They literally say that it is not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel once because of what you said, because they're a diverse nation state. So Israel is both a, a diverse nation state and an apartheid state, which seem to me to be opposite words that can't possibly coexist. But that's what they do. Why? Because they're playing games and they're defining it for us. But I just want to say one more thing. So there was a discussion going on in the union amongst members who were, who were, who were literally saying, well, you can't call me anti-Semitic because uh, I'm Semitic, I'm Arab, I'm Muslim. So how could I be anti-Semitic? Do you see the game they're That's playing? That's their game. Yeah. That's I mean, how game. Did, it's a semantic, yeah. art. it has no meaning, right? But there was literally someone on the chat board. We have, I'm not a delegate of the human, but someone sent me the chat. They're saying, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm Semitic. I'm an Arab. But Arabs and Muslims are covered by Islamophobia, right? And, and, and we can't even be covered by anti-Semitism because technically we're not the only Semitic group. It's a horrible word. It needs to be rethought. There needs to be probably separate words because I've been trying for five years to come up with one word and I can't, but it doesn't cover the situation. It's terrible. Well, Jewphobia doesn't sound very sexy, so that won't no. work either. No. <laughs> Professor, are you able to share a bit about your lawsuit uh, filed against CUNY? Yes, my lawyers will kill me. Um, I so won't tell them. They <laughs> don't want me talking about it. Um, but I will say that uh, we do currently have and it's not just me. There are, there are five uh, Orthodox Jews that have brought a lawsuit against the union uh, that you've seen uh, what they've been doing and against CUNY uh, and against certain individuals involved uh, with the union and with CUNY. And uh, so what's going on on my campus, because I can speak to that in, in great detail, and I'm sure it mirrors similar things at other campuses. But there was a group called the Progressive Faculty Caucus. Now, you'll notice the letters and the name sounds a lot like the union, the PSC and the PFC, because they're, mm-hmm. they're all basically the same people in different places right. um, and different names of groups. But at my campus for years, there was a group that would not allow Orthodox Jews to join. They had 100 members. There were no Orthodox Jews. Six different Orthodox Jews, and five of them are a member of this lawsuit, asked to join the group. They were turned down. And this is an open faculty group that's interested in matters on the campus. They were turned down, including me. And no other person was turned down. So that's amazing, right? And um, so they were not allowed, and they held events on Friday night so that specifically I couldn't come. And they admitted this in the investigation. 
Mm-hmm. I've had an EEOC investigation now substantiated completely. We wiped the floor with them, I'm proud to say. Good. And the EEOC said, said that I was discriminated against, said I was retaliated against, and said that I was subjected to a hostile work environment and that CUNY tolerated it. And what did they do? They didn't allow Orthodox Jews into their group. And they, they admitted, because this is how stupid they are, the only advantage we have over them, it's not numbers, it's stupidity. They're stupid and they're so ideological that they let that overcome common sense. They admitted that they had these events on Friday night so that I couldn't come. So, you know, they admitted it. And that's very dumb, but it's, on, it's in public, public record now and, and the EEOC has substantiated it. And CUNY has done nothing. Bela, do we have time for another question? Yeah, um, yeah, we have time for your question. Okay. I have a question after that, so go okay. for it. So, uh, Professor, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, the Midwest. Um, there are Jewish communities there, but still, it's not. There's not a dominant force. New York is the capital, the Jewish capital of America, and if this can happen here, then then we're done. It's one thing if it happens in again Iowa, if it happens in Detroit, if it happens. North Dakota, but to happen in New York and happen so brazenly should scare the hell out of all of us. And my follow-up to that is, is CUNY, um, is that under the provision, if that's the right word, is it under uh, the, the, gov- the auspices of the governor or of the mayor? And if it's under the mayor, why was none of this brought up during any of the mayoral campaigns? Oh, um, it's a complicated question. Technically both. They're part of New York State, and they're also part of the city. The funding comes from both. You may be aware of the, gov- the New York State executive order by Governor Cuomo, which says you cannot support BDS or New York State will not work from you. I've been in contact with the governor's office about that, working with Jacob Adler, who's a Jewish liaison in his office. And I really hope, I'm praying that they follow their own executive order. This is governor. This is not a previous governor. This is this governor's uh, executive order that says, that we will not recognize you or work with you if you support BDS. Well, I have sent a letter and I've spoken at length to Mr. Adler and I've said this union should no longer be recognized. They should not be the exclusive bargaining unit with CUNY because they're clearly supporting BDS. And I want to just point it out for your listeners and for, and for you both that the, the resolution was very, they tried to be very clever. They're not clever people, but they try to be clever. And it's actually kind of hilarious when they try to be clever because they're so stupid. They put in the resolution that um, so uh, the, the way they worded it was, we're going to have discussions about BDS. So why do they do that? Because they know if they say we're adopting BDS, that the executive order goes into effect and the state will not be able to work with them anymore. They know, but they're so, by the way, they're risking their own existence because they hate Jews so much. It shows you, it shows you really who these people are. So they word it carefully, but then in the last paragraph of the resolution, they say that we demand that the U.S., uh, uh, revoke all funding to Israel. They divest from Israel. Well, that is the D in divestment. So you have a resolution that is so, not just hypocritical, but contradicts itself that they actually are demanding BDS action and they're saying they're not, right? So you could say that's clever. They think it's clever. I think it's stupid because if the governor just follows their own rules, that disqualifies them as a union representative. And they are. I want to be very clear with the listeners. They are saying that they're talking about discussing BDS. No, they are currently right now demanding that the government, that Joe Biden uh, divest all funding from Israel. That is BDS. That violates the executive order. They should not be the bargaining unit in New York. One last question. 
Professor, you are a man of high integrity. You stand up for what you believe in. You are a true scholar and leader, and you have made the headlines. Please share with our audience about yourself. How did you come to be the inspirational Professor Lacks? Uh, talk to my family about saying these nice things about me. My kids don't give me this kind of uh, adulation, but thank you. Um, I, listen, I am not an ideologue. I, I do have my beliefs, uh, but in terms of, and I, and, I, and I have very strong beliefs too, political beliefs. But when I say I'm not an ideologue, I don't walk into my job and try to indoctrinate anybody, uh, faculty members, colleagues, friends, students, especially, I'm careful about that. I wanted to teach and I always, I practiced law for five years. I frankly did not like it. Um, and I used to teach at night, one night a week at Toro College, at Baruch, at Brooklyn College. And I decided to try and make this my, my full-time thing. And, and if they would just let me do my job, if I didn't, I don't like dealing with this. I do feel a very, very weighty obligation to, uh, to deal, fight for this because there are so few of us. And then the words of support that I've gotten mean everything to me and really pushes me to fight harder. Um, but that's not why I got into this. I got into this to teach students. Um, and I wish, I wish I was able to teach and run my department. Um, and, and then I would be a much more relaxed and happier person. But I do feel pr so privileged to be taking on this fight. It's a privilege. Um, I'm not a hero. There are many people working with me and working on the same issues. Um, it You're was very modest. That I forgot to add that. What's that? You're very modest. I forgot to add that. Well, I'm just being honest. humble. No, I'm just being honest. There are a lot of people working behind the scenes that you'll never hear about. And um, uh, it's uh, it was never a choice. It's not like I ever thought, oh, should I do this? Should I not do this? When you see what's going on and you're the child of the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, uh, you don't really have a choice. And, and that's how I feel. It was never even never even a choice for me. Thank you so much. Our time is up. Professor Lax, thank you for giving us your time on the definitive wrap. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. And thank you to vinews.com for our show being their official podcast. Good luck to you, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.